Hello, left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. We are building a community of investors who are interested in acquiring real assets that produce real cash flow. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. Look, at the end of the day, you are investing in people, always. If you buy stock in Apple, you're buying Tim Cook. You buy Tesla, Elon Musk to a certain extent, right? I mean, you trust in their vision and their track record, their ability to execute and whatnot. That's coming right up. But first, I want to introduce TribeVest, our show sponsor. I have Travis Smith here, the founder and CEO. Travis, you know I'm a fan of your platform and I'm a member in four different tribes. In fact, I like the platform so much, I'm also an investor. Can you share some of the ways you think TribeVest can help build wealth for passive investors? Thanks, Jim. Well, as you know, we've built a platform that empowers people to easily and safely form investor tribes. If you're a part of an investor tribe, you can participate in deals that maybe you wouldn't or couldn't on your own. And I think that's why TribeVest is so popular amongst passive investors. Think about it. Deals start at 25000 but I've seen investment minimums as high as $100,000 or even $200,000. And I don't care who you are. Those are big checks to be writing as a solo investor. But as a tribe, each member can drastically lower their capital requirement and spread the risk on the deal. Or another way to look at it is where maybe as a solo investor, you might invest in one deal, but with your tribe, you could invest in five, maybe 10 deals. You can think of tribe investing as a wealth building experience with the people you know, like, and trust. If there are left fielders who are interested in learning more, please have them check out tribevest.com or reach out to me directly. Jim, we are thrilled to be a part of Passive Investing from Left Field and excited to listen to your interview with this week's guest. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the Left Field community. This is Brian Burke from Praxis Capital, and you are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Welcome. Today, I'm uh, pleased to have Eric Sussman, the founding partner of Clear Capital and an adjunct professor with UCLA's Anderson Graduate School of Management here with us today. He's also the uh, podcast host of Focus on Facts, and he was at our May 24th uh, Left Field Investors meeting, and we had a great conversation about the real estate and the economy, and we're super pleased to have him on the podcast. So, Eric, uh, welcome to Passive Investing from Left Field. It's great to be here, Jim. Thanks for having me. Great. So what I'd like to start out with is if you could just tell us a little bit about your journey, how you got to be a, a syndication sponsor, how you got into real estate, kind of just a, a brief synopsis of how you got to where you are. Did you say brief synopsis, Jim? <laughs> I just want to make sure you you understand you're talking to a, a, a professor. So God help you all when you ask for something brief. I'll do my best. 
Yeah, the, the funny thing is my journey is sort of circuitous. That's sort of the, the challenge. But I, you know, I, I went to UCLA as an undergraduate. I, I majored in economics business. I went to uh, work for one of the big accounting firms, Pricewaterhouse, which I'm sure many of you know. And that was my world. It was not going to be my life journey. I realized that pretty early on. So I went back to uh, business school and did a pivot, which is sort of the word we use when you're making a career change. And it was really through that, through a, actually a one of my professors, believe it or not. I, I'm grateful. I should give him full credit, Joel Peterson. He used to be the CEO of Trammell Crow. You may have heard of that firm, a large company. He retired and started teaching. And he pulled me aside one day and said, hey, Eric, had really good at this stuff. Have you thought about real estate as a, uh, as a career? And I, I said, no. <laughs> and uh, anyways, uh, well, so much for that. Um, you know, after business school, I went to work for a, a really small shop gentleman who was doing um, syndications and actually in those days what's known to, as hard money lending today doesn't uh, we don't sort of call it that it's more private debt lending and, and sort of I worked for him for a year and then realized I want to do it on my own and that was sort of the origins of clear capital way back then so talking 25 years ago. Wow so how, how did you make the leap from doing you know private lending to buying apartments large apartments and syndicating them? Yeah, well, he, as I said, he was doing some real estate sponsorship, but you're right. It wasn't in apartments. He was sort of doing whatever deals crossed his desk. And again, we're talking 1993-ish, something like that. You know, different market back then for those of, I don't know if any of your listeners sort of uh, have, have that vintage. But if you remember those days, the days of the RTC, early 90s, that was sort of following the, the great you know, sort of the recession from 1989 to 92 and a lot of bank failures. And so there were a lot of properties that were out there. It was, it was sort of shooting you know, fish in a barrel. Capital was the hard part. It's sort of the inverse of what we see today, which is something we can talk about. It's kind of interesting. Anyway, so I, when I went on my own, I was just doing deals. I, in the 90s, I did projects. I did industrial office, uh, retail. I did some apartments. And then around 2000, 99, 2000, I sort of realized, again, the market had shifted, as it does. And sort of looking forward, it seemed that the best risk-reward sort of dynamic was in multifamily apartments, and I haven't looked back. And so that's all that I've done, all that Clear Capital has done. The last 20, holy moly, for 20 years now, it's just been multifamily. That's really, really great. So can you tell me, you mentioned that capital was maybe not so available in the 90s, implying, and I think it's you know, it is much more available now. So how does that affect multifamily? I mean, it's driving cap rates down, but what are the other effects of having so much capital sitting on the sidelines ready to be deployed? Yeah, you know, it's so critical, Jim. I, I can't remember if it, on the, the last time when I did the presentation for you, I mentioned, you know, that M1 money supply to get a little wonkish. But if you think about how much liquidity is out there on the sidelines, it's like $18 trillion right now, which is an all-time high. There's just so much liquidity out there. And Many of you may know exactly what I'm talking about and feel very blessed that you're in that situation. But you see it everywhere. You see it's not just in the real estate markets and those compressed cap rates across pretty much all sectors, but you know, the equity markets. I mean, I mean, some of the froth and some companies that really, I, I think we call them zombie companies that really don't have a sustainable business model that would probably be out of business if it weren't for all this liquidity and capital sitting there. You see it everywhere, obviously. Fixed income instruments, low rates. I mean, it's it's commodity prices. I'm sure I can't, I'm sure that came up in our discussion last time. I mean, it's hard to find actually a. I can kind of turn your question around. It's hard to find a market 
or investment opportunity where it's not affected by all this liquidity. So it's just a, a challenge for a value sort of focused investor like uh, yours. Truly, it isn't easy. And I'll tell you that much. As a syndicator, you know, you're, you're buying apartments and I know you've had uh, several deals lately. How do you find these deals with the way the market is and what different areas are you looking? Because I know I saw a deal in Phoenix, a deal in Vegas. Like where are you just looking everywhere for the value or do you have some markets you're concentrating on? Yeah, there's a few questions there to sort of unpack and they're good ones, Jim. I mean, so on the first one, sourcing deals, you're, you're absolutely right. That is the biggest challenge now. You, the way I, I worded, I may have even worded it on the, uh, on our discussion is that you kiss a lot of frogs and very, very few turn to princes or princesses or whatever. The other expression I use is, is we are often groomsmen or, or bridesmaids these days. So it's really tough. Um, you know, we've got a team, obviously, of, of uh, led by Enrique Puerta at, at Clear Capital, and, and they are on the road, I would say, pretty much 70% a month out, outside of California. We'll talk about that, I'm sure. You know, meeting with brokers, looking at deals doing a lot of underwriting, and most make no sense at all. We're disciplined, so we just let, let them go. But we're fortunately able to find enough through all that human power and resources we're throwing at the issue. You know, to where we're going, it's not anywhere. I think, as I discussed, we're focused on the Southwest, Mountain West, and Sunbelt regions. You can think of it sort of as you go east from uh, the great state of California, which I still love, and um, that's where I am right now take a lot to get me out of here but you know from literally from idaho all the way down through again uh, nevada uh, arizona utah new mexico texas into georgia we're even looking at tampa florida now so we're sort of thinking of it as that sort of going down that sort of geographic areas where we're really looking at deals but it isn't easy well, I think I said Vegas, but I meant with Salt Lake City is your latest deal. So I just wanted to correct the record there. I have Vegas on my mind. Back to economics a little bit. I hear a lot about inflation. Everyone wants to talk about inflation. So I figure let's talk about that here. Is it transitory or is it here to stay? It's funny. If I look back on the last five years and you know, as a teacher, I do a lot of public speaking, I think as you can appreciate it. I don't remember inflation even being on sort of the radar. I mean, maybe in the context of just the yield curve or rates being really low or, you know, whatever. And yet now, look today, that is the single most tangible economic data point that's on everyone's mind is inflation because we live, we're living it, right? Whether it's housing prices or rents or you head to Home Depot and try to buy a two by four. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And, 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 Used car prices. I asked my class, I said, do you know what the single greatest category of product that had the biggest price increase last year? And I, of course, I get these stares. I don't know, Paps Blue Ribbon, I guess, would probably be on their minds. But it's, uh, it's actually used car prices. You can use car prices were up 20% last year. So that's the question, Jim. You hit the nail on the head. Is this a, a blip? Is it something more uh, s- systemic and longer term? Again, crystal balls are a, it's a, a tricky business, as I always say. My sense is probably in the middle. We're going to have inflation for the next, I'd say, year plus, just because of supply chain disruptions and the post-COVID sort of impact. That is both on the demand side, which we can all appreciate. I'm sure many of us are thrilled to death to not be wearing masks and maybe even going to visit a restaurant or a bar in person. Thank God for that. But you know, on the supply side, obviously the disruptions in the chain was substantial, and so you know you got imbalance there. And so clearly that, again, you don't have to have a PhD in economics that you're going to have higher prices. 
But if you look at sort of longer term, once that sort of undoes or unwinds, my sense is that those trends of deflation, which include Amazon, automation, increasing productivity, artificial intelligence, I think the demographic issues I talked about with you all and I think don't get enough play, which are really important. Low fertility rates are ridiculously ill-conceived and, you know, antiquated immigration policy. We need immigrants, frankly, with low fertility rates. We just have to be mindful about it. But we, without population growth and those other factors, I think actually those are very strongly deflationary. I don't know if I mentioned when we spoke last time, but, you know, Japan is where we're headed, actually, if I look out. You know, I may not be here, but if things keep going demographically, that's where we're headed. And that is deflationary, actually. So in, in Japan, did they print as much money as, as we are printing when they, you know, when they had their demographic shift? Is, I'm curious, is that the massive printing of money, you know, that's why everyone's talking about inflation. But then there's all these deflationary things going on that you mentioned. So how do those collide? Yeah, and you're right. I should have mentioned that, of course, the tremendous liquidity on the sidelines, of course, I mentioned earlier, and, and the, I'm not sure largesse is the right word of our federal government, but you're right. They've been, uh, they've got some really very um, powerful toner, let's just put it that way, and they've been doing a <laughs> lot of printing. I wouldn't like having that printer myself, but in Japan, actually, they didn't respond fast enough. Uh, you may have heard, I don't know if you've heard of Abenomics. So Abenomics was the, this is the, the prime minister of Japan, and Again, I look back at my calendar, but you know, we're talking maybe five or six years ago. Realized that they had to try something because Japan had been in such a deflationary funk and, and low growth, no growth for decades. They did; they printed more than we did, actually. So it's funny you mentioned that, Jim. So Japan did do a tremendous amount of money printing as well. I don't, I couldn't tell you the figure off the top of my head, but at least before the COVID-related stimulus, it was far in excess of what we had done. That is a temporary salve, it seems to me. Those sort of demographic challenges are far more, again, systemic and long-lasting. And, you know, you can go on and talk about China as well. If you saw China's relaxed its one-child policy and now says you can have as many children as you want. Too late. Unfortunately, the cattle are out of the barn. But anyways, we can talk more about that if you'd like, for sure. I want to go back to, um, you mentioned, and you, you talked a little bit about this last month, but the three A's, Amazon, automation, and AI, can, artificial intelligence. Can you talk a little bit about what the importance of those are and, and what they're doing to the economy? Yeah, sure. And I, I should trademark that. That's my own. I, I have a few things that I probably ought to trademark, but I'm an intellectual property moron, so I don't do those things. But look, yeah, by and large, you, you can think about a few things. One is just they are increasing productivity. So and we're going to reduce lowering costs. Amazon, of course, I assume probably everyone who's listening to this podcast is a prime member, certainly some of your family members are. And right, it's, it's like they're commercial. Look at that price, right? So it, it's so much more transparent, so much greater productivity, and that is very deflationary. And on the automation, of course, it's just stripped labor out of the equation. And so now you really see this sort of hitting ahead because You've probably, again, talk about wage pressure now in the post-COVID area and that inflationary sort of pressure. But what's happened is, of course, is automation and artificial intelligence have replaced a lot of humans. The example I give, and because all my students, and we can all relate to it, when's the last time you went to a parking lot and you left the parking lot and you actually had to give your ticket to a human being? You just put your ticket in, you put, both times there's no one there, right? So stop and think. They've just stripped out 
however many people and shifts that were used to be required there. And now it's a machine that is deflationary. It reduces costs, increases efficiency, and also changes our nature of employment, which is a whole other discussion we can have. But that's basically it. So if it changes employment, right, obviously automation, AI, that's going to change employment. But what does that do then to a multifamily apartment building owner, right? When people are losing their jobs or they're, they're working less or earning less, is that going to cause rents to go down? Is that going to cause problems in the future for real estate? Well, right. There are, you always have to think about, I call them headwinds and tailwinds. In, in every, any business, there are always headwinds and there are tailwinds. So you're absolutely right. You know, Jim, if we step back and we think, gee, that doesn't sound very good for employment levels and wages and whatnot. And that would seem to be sort of a headwind for multifamily. But you have to sort of look at a bigger context as well. Like housing is not just that's right. You can sort of think of a, the universe of housing supply in the United States, let's say, from a you know, detached single family home. And even within detached single family homes, there's segments there all the way down to the 20 to 35 year olds that refuse to leave the nest and are still crashing. Yeah, I got, yeah, hell, I just got rid of one. I got one left at home and I was talking with my wife and I don't know, I don't think she's going anywhere anytime soon. Uh, so, you know, you think about that universe, right? So right now, and I may have mentioned to you all, that we have record numbers of 20 to 35 year olds living at home. Their next step is going to be apartments. And when they do leave that nest, when my daughter, I love the 20, three-year-old daughter, Amanda, when she gets the, the shoe or she leaves, I don't know which we'll see. <laughs> I think it'll be on her own volition. She's going to rent an apartment. So, you know, those are serious tailwinds. I would also say that, look, everyone on this podcast, everyone listening understands that housing prices are through the roof, no pun intended. So that makes single family housing affordability that much more challenging. Well, again, so what is the closest substitute for those folks? And it's most likely, you know, higher end apartments. So, you know, that's the way I think about it. There's headwinds and tailwinds, and it's sort of this MMA match. But ultimately, we're so undersupplied as far as housing goes. I think there are far more uh, tailwinds than headwinds. So the undersupply, let's talk about that a little bit. How, how did we get so behind, right? In the 2008 crisis, it seemed like there was oversupply. And, and now just 10, 12 years later, there's undersupply. Immigration and birth rates are declining, but we still don't have enough housing. So the question is, why don't we have enough? And if everyone's going to start building now, are we going to have oversupply issues coming up? Yeah, that again, Jim, you're asking some really, really good and thoughtful questions. Not that you need me to say that, but it, it's true because people sort of say, well, yeah, God, the solution is freaking simple, man. Just build more housing. I mean, this is like, you know, economics, forget 101, it's 100. <laughs> well, stop and think. Again, I, you know, I know your, your listeners are all over the place, but the trend of, let's say, what, I can talk about California, and that, that trend is sort of a, its own virus of sorts, and it's spreading. And that is everything from you know, lack of buildable lots, ridiculous and antiquated zoning regulations, NIMBYism, I think like we talked about, you know, not in my backyard. I think I told you all about banana, build absolutely nothing near anything near anyone. And then the one I think, I, the last one I heard, so told me I, I got, um, it was cave. Yeah, citizens against virtually everything. But, you know, we, we smile. It's kind of funny, but it's true, right? You can, again, in, in, a, in a lot of communities, have a project that complies entirely with local zoning regulations. 
And yet it's not a slam dunk. You still have to go through the process. They still have these hearings and these people show up and, you know, they protest like crazy. And as one council person told me, there are a lot more tenants than there are landlords out there. And so they just protest. And, you know, it's, we're four to five million housing units short a year for what we need. And it's a mess. So you talk about, again, lack of little lots, all the antiquated zoning regulations, increased cost to building, of course, now, especially it's a sort of perfect storm, which is really wreaking havoc on our markets. And affordable housing seems to be an issue too. Is, is there any way, it's hard to build new affordable housing because then it's not going to be affordable. So I know a lot of syndicators and people we deal with, you know, you buy something from the 70s and, and fix it up. And so that's easier than building something new. But is affordable housing going to be a problem also or continue to be? There will be. And again, Affordable housing has its own sort of lexicon, right? When you say, is it affordable, what do you mean? Are you talking sort of, you know, affordable that a working class family can reasonably pay the, the housing costs? Or are you actually talking about something that is legally mandated to have affordable rents? There, there's The rents are capped at some level under the, the, the law. So we want to be at least mindful about that. But it doesn't even matter. In either case, we don't have enough housing. The, the amazing thing is it costs more. Again, I can say that California, Los Angeles, it costs more to build an affordable unit. That is a, a unit that is mandated affordable than it does to build a market unit. You say, well, how can that be? It's because of the rules. We have to, you have to use union labor. There are all sorts of other oversight. You know, the government has its finger in the till and that regulatory oversight actually increases the cost of building an affordable unit. I mean, it's just, you just want to hit your head against the wall. You know, it's this typical battlefield, and it's it, again, it's everywhere in the country now, and it's really a problem because I don't see it's almost intractable. To me. I don't like how, how do you how do you we want to, okay okay fine get politicians that really are willing to do something about it, but they're not, and that those people aren't running for office, right? Well, so we're talking about the affordable housing. That brings me to uh, something else you should have trademarked or copyrighted: the three H's. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I've got two sets of three H's. There's the haves, the have-nots, and the homeless. And that latter one is really tragic. And it's, it's everywhere now. You go anywhere in the country, in fact, anywhere in the world, frankly. I'll tell you, if you, if you have time, I know we're short on it. But it is a global issue, uh, homelessness. And we, we, we they, you know, again, it's become politicized like everything else. But that's what I really you know, talk about. But again, has have-nots in the homeless and then housing, housing affordability in the homeless. So I got two sets of three H's. You know, I don't say it to be cute or funny or anything like that because it's a serious, serious issue. So when we talk about housing affordability in that context, I mean, in every community, there are just so many people living on the streets, living in tents. We have tense cities. And again, it doesn't seem like our politicians or the citizens are in the United States of America, for gosh sakes really have the political will and the desire to spend the money to, to deal with this issue. Um, and, and it's not, Jim, before, again, we could spend an hour on that alone. It's not just housing. It's mental illness. It's it's drug addiction. It's other aspects. It's not just putting a, even a tent over someone's head. It's dealing with these other systemic problems. And that takes a lot of money and a lot of political will. That kind of correlates to wealth inequality, right? And you talked a little bit about that. Can you talk about how you see wealth inequality affecting the economy in the future? And is there a solution? This is my opinion of things, and, and I feel strongly about them, but they're my opinions. I actually believe that wealth inequality is the single greatest risk our nation faces in terms of just civil unrest and sort of just preservation of our constitutional republic, frankly. Um, now, 
Of course, because I'm an academic, I'll get a little wonkish, so I hope you'll forgive me. Uh, there's something called the Gini coefficient. The Gini coefficient is actually a measure of wealth inequality. It was invented by a 15th century Italian economist, actually. And I can tell you that the Gini coefficient is its highest level as it's ever been in the United States. And it's even higher than what it, it existed in France, which really predated the French Revolution. For those of you who are history buffs, and you should learn your history, right? It doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes, as Mark Twain uh, said, as Mark Twain said so many great things. But right, I mean, that's what happens. Look, we can sort of close our eyes on whatever news media outlets we're watching, but look, whatever you want to call those civil unrest, you want to call them the riots from last summer, and, and again, everyone politicizes them for their own purposes, and I won't do that. But it comes down to the haves and the have-nots. There, there's people who really are struggling right now, and, there, and then many of us who are grateful and blessed beyond means, but it's creating, it's going to create some social challenges for me, for not me, but for my kids and nieces and nephews. I may be six feet under, but I, I see the greatest systemic risk to our democracy. Okay, well, it's difficult to pivot off of that, but... I wish this was vodka and said it's just pure... Yeah, of course, it's, it's spring water here in California. Yeah. <laughs> well, I asked the question, and I've, I've heard that you, you said the answer before, so I knew what I was getting into. But I'd like to talk a little bit about multifamily properties and debt, the, specifically bridge debt. Can you explain bridge debt and some of the... What I've been hearing, some dangers of bridge debt is you have people going in and buying low-cost adjustable short-term debt, and then the same thing that happened in 2008, right? Everyone has it, and all of a sudden interest rates go up, and now you own this building, you can't, you can't pay all the expenses. So can you talk to us from you know, maybe the perspective of a passive investor who's investing in the syndication? What can I look for to make sure that I'm getting the right, I'm investing in the deal with the correct debt structure? Wait a minute, Jim. You just accused me of going, uh, giving a lot. Now, that, that question, you know, I guess turnabout is fair play in this business, right? So you're right. Look, in our business model, in anyone who's sort of similarly situated, when you're doing sort of value-add renovations and you're going to try to turn that, that sow's ear to the silk purse or something like it, you generally don't put on fixed-rate, long-term permanent debt because it's just a mismatch, right? And also, the whole strategy when you're using other people's money as passive investors is to sort of maximize their returns and, of course, the returns of the sponsor as well. So short-term sort of debt gives you that flexibility. You execute on your business plan, you increase the rents, you increase the cash flows, and then you refinance that short-term debt with new debt. And because you've hopefully executed and increased the cash flow, you can actually, with the replaced debt, return a, a lot of capital to your investors, which, of course, everyone likes. But you are a thousand percent correct. There's no free lunch right? There ain't no free lunch, as my father always said. And so the question is, what is the risk that you're assuming for that potential reality? And you said one of them, right? If, if rents, I mean, if uh, interest rates spike, that could really throw a wrench in your plan. All of us need to ask and understand is what has the sponsor done to hedge or mitigate that risk? In our case, we use derivatives. We buy interest rate caps. So because you're absolutely right. Look, I can control our business plan. I can hopefully control our people. I hope just not that sounds bad, but you know, you know, we manage them effectively to execute. But I don't control Jerome Powell and our Federal Reserve, unfortunately. And I don't have that toner, that printer I, I referred to earlier at Costco. Unfortunately, I keep looking, but unfortunately, I don't have it. 
So you really have to ask, what are they doing? What's their strategy? So there are a couple I can think of. One is, again, is buying interest rate caps so that if interest rates do spike, you've hedged using a derivative instrument. That's made for another podcast. It may, again, be you got to execute quickly. Look, the longer you futz around and you don't execute, you're, you're the greater the risk that you're going to have a spike in rates, right? That's common sense. So it's really making sure with whomever you invest, always, that they're you know, I guess I'm tooting my own horn, but it's true. Any any uh, sponsor, they're experienced. They know what they're doing. Their track record is good. That they can actually do, say what they do and do what they say. Because if they're if they fail to execute, that just increases not just the underlying property risk, but of course the risk you're talking about with uh, with interest rates. Another question for Travis Smith, the founder of TribeVest. Travis, I often talk about group investing and how it can ease someone into passive investing because they're investing with other people. Can you talk about the power of groups and how TribeVest can help new investors get started in syndication investing? I love this question because it reminds me of why we started TribeVest. My brothers and I saw real estate as a way to hack wealth without having to give up our day jobs. And despite not having any real estate investment experience, we found confidence as a tribe and that we'd be making decisions together. We were up for the adventure. We valued the idea of learning and growing together. But we had a more obvious problem than lack of experience. We lacked capital. We had good incomes, but didn't have the lump sums of money to break into syndicate investing. We each committed to contributing $500 monthly. And that was our breakthrough. As a tribe, the capital added up fast. And it wasn't long before we had our first experience in true wealth building. We were now part owners of a physician's office building in beautiful Pasadena, California. And we've been building wealth ever since. So yes, TribeVest is a great tool for people to ease into passive investing because it makes it so easy. And it helps you take the most important step, the first one. If you start pulling capital, the deals will come. Jim, we realized that if our tribe could do it, any tribe could. By forming and funding our investor tribe, we secured a future we could have never imagined. It really did change our lives. I understand the part about experienced sponsor. I agree, you know, the, the more experience you can get in, in a track record. So if, if I'm investing in a deal with, with a sponsor, and whether they're experienced or not, should I be, and they have a bridge, bridge debt structure, should I be checking to make sure they have an interest rate cap and to ask that a different way? Would you invest passively in a deal that, that didn't? Yeah, that's a fair question. I always am very hesitant doing sort of black and white, don't do this, never do that. It would give me just one other, I'd, I'd go in with my eyes wide open that I understand that's a risk. There's a cost, of course, to getting these interest rate caps. There is, it costs us money. So there is a impact on the ultimate return to investors. And that's why you've got to be careful always when you're looking at deals that you're not just saying, well, gee, they have this sponsor has IRR of, or this return metric of X and this one has Y. Well, again, this one may be hedging interest rates. This one may not be. So there may be a differential there. I think it's just having your eyes wide open and understanding it. It should be disclosed. I mean, we certainly disclose that in our offering documents in the private placement memorandum. These got awful documents we all get and, and receive, right? you know, and uh, they should discuss that in there, and hopefully they have. When you look at all these deals, and we talked about all the capital that's that's chasing deals, 
I'm sure that's putting pressure on operators and syndicators to be aggressive. So if you're a passive investor, which you know most of our listeners are, what are some of the things that we need to be looking for to make sure that we, we're finding out what, where, they, where they're being aggressive and maybe if someone's being too aggressive? Generally speaking, in the passive real estate, if you're talking about what we do, you're either investing in a single asset syndication where you know, the, you know and you can see with transparency the actual asset that's being acquired as opposed to a fund or a blind pool where you can so you may have invested in those, and I have as well, frankly, where you're just really putting essentially your faith and trust in the sponsor to, to do what they have done previously. I guess it's far easier to do an assessment when you can see the asset, right? So I have investors, and I don't know how many of you have done that, actually don't visit the properties before they commit their capital. And maybe if it's a modest amount of money, you know, you're diversified, you're not doing that. But some of our investors are, you know, they put in a decent amount of money and many of them actually come and kick the tires, which I encourage them to do. I mean, if you have the time and the wherewithal, you know, the Lord helps those who help themselves and a picture tells a thousand words. I can probably come up with a few other fortune cookie, um, you know, platitudes here. You know, you go visit the property. What the sponsor is sort of telling you is their business model actually makes sense to you. It seems to comport with what you see and in the marketplace. I mean, again, I, I'm really here just to talk with like like our Salt Lake City deal, which is class C's, you know, and we're going to make it B by the time we're done. But literally across the street, I mean, right across the street is a new five-story brand new class A project. And, you know, right. That tells me we're going to be the, the ugly duckling in a really upcoming neighborhood. And that's exactly where I want to be. So you see it. And that at least lets you know, yeah, okay, the thinking here is, is, is good and correct. And hopefully all goes to plan. So we have a lot of new passive investors, people just getting into it. And we talk a lot about, you know, our community of left field investors. Part of what we do is, is help people through education and networking to, to get involved in passive investing. And we talk a lot about shortcuts, meaning you don't have to go through everything that the last person went through. You just kind of jump in with them and, and learn from that. Do you have any good shortcuts that to help someone figure out how to either screen a sponsor or, or, or talk to a, a new sponsor and other than maybe track record to figure out if they're worth investing in? Well, this is where, um, as a professor type, you know, shortcuts make me a little uneasy. There's, uh, they tend maybe to be shortcuts for a reason. Look, at the end of the day, you are investing in people. Always. You buy stock in Apple, you're buying Tim Cook. You buy Tesla, Elon Musk to a certain extent, right? I mean, you trust in their vision and their track record, their ability to execute and whatnot. Uh, to me, look, um, your peers and friends and those people that you trust, you got to be a little careful because that, that's not foolproof. It isn't, but it's certainly the, probably the most valuable shortcut that I know. It is. I mean, look, the internet is, is both a, a curse and a blessing. And certainly you, you have Google at your fingertips. You can do everything from Better Business Bureau. You could search people's criminal records, frankly, online, if you're worried about or, you know, civil judgments and things like that. There are a lot of things you can do if you really want to do that due diligence. And I'm not saying you should. I, I myself don't do that. But you could if you really wanted to. Those are certainly shortcuts. But honestly, Jim, my attitude in life is very few shortcuts. Uh, I certainly tell my kids there aren't shortcuts. They got to do what they got to do. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that makes sense. I think that the shortcut for us is using the community to kind of crowdsource the due diligence on an asset or an operator 
or even an asset class. And that's kind of what we're trying to do with our shortcuts. Can I have one just real yeah. quick nice thing? I, I'll never forget one of my investors said to me, this is now maybe 20 years ago. He said, Eric, the one thing is, you know, you're a professor at UCLA Business School. You know, you have a, rep, a lot of reputational risk. And that has made me more comfortable with investing with you. And again, and I, that's what he told me. And again, I, I am not sound very salesy, but that, that resonated with me. You know, people that do have transparency in general, that may be something else to think about as you're investing. Anyway, sorry, came to me. That's a great point because there's also um, a couple of syndicators who are former military or, or police. And, and I, for whatever reason, I've always thought, well, that's a plus. You know, it's not necessary. It's just a plus, right? It's just an extra thing to give a little more trust to the relationship. Exactly. I think that's, that's, a, that's an excellent point. I, and I would agree with your perspective. So we have a deal analyzer tool that kind of lists a bunch of metrics and, and we put our deals through there just to kind of do a check. Because when we're investing, left field investors, kind of one of our philosophies is, Vet the sponsor. That's the most important thing. Make sure the sponsor know, like, and trust. Make sure they're experienced. All the stuff that we've been talking about. And then we look at the market, make sure there's population growth and certain other, other things that are important. And then when you look at the deal, I don't want to re-underwrite it. I just want to rely on you to do that. And I'm just going to kind of check and make sure it fits in my little box. So are there specific metrics that you look at that if you were a passive investor, you would say, okay, I want to make sure break-even occupancy is X or anything like that that is something you look at? I love this question because I'm going to tell you a story. It's a, your question made me real a story. That there's a gentleman who invests with us who is, frankly, one of the wealthiest people in, in non-technology people in Silicon Valley. He's a real estate person. And he's on the Zyman board at UCLA's real estate. Um, we have a, a department and he's on the board. And I called him once for some advice or whatever, and he asked me about deals. And I told him I was working on a deal. And he goes, oh, well, Eric, do you, do you want me to invest in it? And I, I wasn't calling him for that. I thought, I mean, he, he, needs, he needs a deal like he needs, a, you know, a, like me, another wrinkle in my forehead. And I said, well, wow, that's, I'd be honored. And, and he goes, well, I just want to ask you four questions. I told him the deal, basically. He said, well, let me ask you four questions. And he asked me these questions. And then he was quiet for, I don't know, a minute. And he goes, I'm in. And I was like, what was he doing? You know, exactly. But basically what it came down to for him were kind of a couple of metrics that I sort of thought what he was doing. And, and it was, one was the loss to lease? I don't know if you've heard that term before. I'm sure you have. Um, which is just, look, what are the in-place rents right now at the asset? So if I looked across the units, whatever the unit mix happens to be, what are the in-place rents per square foot? What are the market rents? When you're done, you know, so that differential, that's the loss to lease. And then he said, how much is it going to cost per unit to actually get from A to B? And I told him, you know, X dollars per unit. And look, obviously he was doing some math and ROI calculations. I, I think to me, it really is about that it is sort of what are the in-place rents right now as they're currently situated? And what are the pro forma, which is not a word I love, but you know, the rents when you finish, they're going to be. And then sort of through, you can probably look at pictures, frankly. You don't have to look at spreadsheets. Just, you know, here's the before. And you hear kind of what's the market like and here what the afters are like, oh, okay, I can, I, can, I can see that. I can visualize that. That's, that's probably the single most important metric, actually. Because if you do that and you do it well, you're going to have equity multiple that makes sense. You're going to have IRRs that make sense and present values or whatever fancy finance lingo you want to throw in there because you've captured that loss to lease effectively. 
So are you looking for properties then that have a large loss to lease? I mean, is that kind of the unicorn that you're looking for? I'm looking for that sow's ear, Jim. I mentioned that earlier. And, I, and I, I'm not sure if maybe some of your listeners know what's below a silk purse. I don't think I've ever built a silk purse. I'm, you know, it's hard to take a sow's ear and turn it into a Louis Vuitton bag. Obviously, there are people that do it, but they're usually knockoffs. So maybe that's, uh, maybe that's the takeaway. That's what we look for. No question. And then the other things you said, Jim, look, you're looking for markets where the demographics make sense, where people are moving to, where there's supply constrained, either because of geography or just intractable political bullcrap. You know, that's happening in a lot of places. I told you, you know, even even cities where it used to be easy to go, take a place like Phoenix. Okay. Phoenix used to be, I mean, compared to California to get entitlements, if you inhale oxygen, you could get a permit pretty much. And even if you didn't inhale oxygen, I think some people have <laughs> through some of the projects I've seen. I mean, Texas, same thing. I got no zoning in places like Houston. But that's changing. That is changing and ironically getting harder to build and harder to find projects. But it means that if you can find that sow's ear, you know, you're likely to be successful. I want to pivot again off of, uh, when we're getting down to the end here, but I know you're a multifamily guy, but as an economist, what other asset classes do you think in the syndication space do you think might be um, attractive to investors moving forward, if any? Yeah, you know, I, I always am very careful about staying in my lane. And you were very kind enough to mention my podcast earlier. I've talked about, I teach courses in equity valuation of stock market. I teach all courses in accounting, SPACs, of course, you know, cryptocurrencies. Honestly, these are things I'd avoid. It's easier for me to think about the things I'd be really wary of and avoid than it is to sort of where are their opportunities now. Because as we said earlier, there's just so much liquidity out there. And if you look across, we're in this sort of strange and almost perfect storm across asset classes, whether it's fixed income, commodities, real estate, equities, you know, and so forth. It's hard to find value. But I look, I'm a contrarian. So generally speaking, when people are not too keen on something, it gets my attention. So I don't know. Look, it's, this is tricky, but like people are down on emerging markets right now, actually. You know, emerging markets I know it's sort of really struggling with COVID, but that will eventually pass. So I'm not sure when to make that move, but emerging markets tend to be either the top performing asset class or at the very bottom of the barrel. And you know, I don't know if you've seen that yourself, Jim. So that's one where I think you are down on it. So I just it got my, I read an article recently, oh, emerging markets are, that actually got my attention. Like maybe I should start looking at emerging markets, but I haven't, I so I have the bandwidth. But other than that, look, I'd be, be wary right now. And maybe that's why there's so much cash too, is it's people making money on cryptocurrencies. You know, when your gardener is telling you that you should buy Ethereum, it's, it makes you a little nervous, you know? Exactly. Well, you, you mentioned your podcast. And so we'll, we'll end the show with my last question, which is other than Focus on Facts, which is a great podcast, or Passive Investing from Left Field, which I also think is a great podcast. What's another podcast you listen to that you could recommend to our listeners? Yeah, and it's got phenomenal guests, by the way. <laughs> I'm. I have to confess, I am not a big podcast listener. I know it's it's crazy, and I'm a big reader. I read. I still read. You know, look, I'm a wonkish academic type, so I read. I I don't listen to any podcasts routinely. I mean, Pod Save America. Once in a while, I listen to some other things, but I don't listen. It's funny, Jim. I have to be honest. I don't listen to too many podcasts. I don't have any go tos. And once in a while. People refer me to, hey, Eric, you got to listen to this podcast. It's really interesting. It's sort of a, some interesting topics. But 
I'm more a reader. So I can tell you, like, I read, I live and read The Economist. That's my go-to. That is my number one publication. I can tell you that. But podcasting, I'm not going to be very good to help you. But I do recommend Left Field Investors for sure and Focus on Facts I, I, with every fiber of my uh, being. Well, that's good enough for me. And I'll, I'll definitely put that in the show notes along with The Economist as a recommendation. So that, that's good. Well, listen, this has been fantastic. Uh, we went a little bit longer as usual um, when we have a, a great guest. So I appreciate your time. Appreciate you being here with us. And we'll definitely, uh, we'll definitely have you again if, if, you're, uh, if you're interested another time. Oh, always willing, Jim. Thanks for having me and uh, wish everybody well. Enjoy this. Hopefully you're all vaccinated and able to enjoy uh, the post-COVID uh, blues we've all had. So thank you, Jim, for having me. Definitely. Wow, well, that was fun. As all of my conversations with Eric have been, it was both entertaining and informative. He was a guest at the Left Field Investors Monthly Meeting in May, and he did not disappoint then, nor did he in the podcast. I just really enjoy talking about economics with him because he has so much information, he's willing to share it, and he shares it in a fun and interesting way. And then he relates it back to real estate, which of course is our focus here today. I enjoyed listening to his take on inflation and that in the long term, that there are so many deflationary forces out there that even though there may be inflation currently and for the next couple of years, his take is most of that's due to COVID and the after effects and that deflationary forces will overwhelm the inflation as we move forward. It was also interesting to hear from him that wealth inequality is biggest fear for the economy in, in the long term. And of course, bringing it back to real estate, talking about bridge debt and interest rate caps and his most important metric in multifamily investing is loss to lease, which is something I've looked at, but I haven't focused on. And you can be sure I will in the future. And always, as I'm talking to Eric, it reminds me that if I had had a professor like him when I was in college, I probably would have been found in the classroom just a little bit more than I actually was. Again, it was great to have Eric on, and I look forward to having him on the podcast again for updates in the future. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com, or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.